Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, thank you everybody for joining me today on this second week of December. Where has this where did this this calendar go this quickly? This is unbelievable. My guest today is Robin. Robin. You see, I can't even speak because I'm so excited. My guest today is Robert Rivenbark, and Robert is a, he's he's something else. He's a prize-winning novelist, screenwriter, director, producer, copywriter, and he's joining me today from Atlanta. Welcome to the show, Robert. Well, hi, uh, Marsha. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Mo, it's, it's, you know, there are some people that just have a very engaging personality. You, my friend, are one of those people because I like to speak to my guests prior to, to coming on the air, and we just hit it off because you are just you are you have a tremendous personality and i am really looking forward to sharing your story today so let's start off by finding out well who the heck are you so please tell us a little about a bit about yourself and your background okay um i i grew up in a little town uh, called waycross georgia which is about 60 miles north of uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, my parents went through a pretty tough divorce when I was 11 years old, and we moved uh, up to DeKalb County right outside of Atlanta, and it was uh, one of the most significant events of my life, the reason being is that after we got there and I started attending Sagamore Hills Grammar School, in DeKalb County, which is a suburb of Atlanta, uh, I met uh, the teacher, Mrs. Lee, who changed my life and showed me that I was born to be a writer. Uh, She was my sixth grade uh, homeroom and English teacher, and she had just graduated from Agnes Scott College the year before. I can see her before me now, a very petite uh, lady with um, sort of dark blonde hair, beautiful brown eyes, uh, probably 26 years old. Mm -hmm. And she saw something in me. And when we had class elections, she arranged so that I would be elected what was called program chairman. You know, we had president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, but she Uh added this office program chairman. And and by means of that, I became the class playwright. And I uh, wrote, directed, and produced two original plays uh, that were based on, you know, horror movies I was watching at the time. (laughs) And I also read short stories in front of the class. And that changed my life because I had no idea I was any good uh, as a writer. But Mrs. Lee showed me that, and I just pray that I will find her. Maybe 
Maybe I'll find her through this. I never knew her first name. I was you didn't call a oh teacher my, by her first name. Of course. Isn't and I don't know how am- to find her. Right. And isn't it amazing? My brother is a retired school teacher. Um, He taught in middle school and he was an art teacher. But teachers play a significant role in in our lives, whether it's, it's your personal life, it's the lives of your children or your community. I, they are they are sometimes underappreciated and recognized for what it is that they do because they can be a definite game changer. And it would be so cool if somehow you could go into the archives of your elementary school and do some investigation into Mrs. Lee to see, you know, because that's really, that's really a, that's a great story of how somebody can influence you. And I would like people to I'd like I like to spell names and I like to direct people to websites. So Robert, I'm going to spell your last name. It is R I V like in Victor E N B A R K Rivenbark, just like it sounds. And if you want to go to Robert's website, you just simply type in the cloudnovel.com. It's just that simple. And it, it's it's really cool because the first thing that you see looking at you as I'm doing this right now is this man that's on the cover of your book. And he, it's like, ooh, gosh, he knows something. It's like he's he's staring at you and it's like, oh, gosh, what does he know? But I thought before we get over to the part of your book, I'm just hmm. curious to know, when did you – when did you first decide that you wanted to really become a writer? Well, I think uh, at, at the tender age of uh, 11, I had a pretty good inkling. I, I just didn't quite know what to do with it. It took me a few years to wrap my head around that. That mm-hmm. year showed me that, you know, this is probably a path I need to pursue. But I didn't know how to articulate that to myself. Uh, I think, though, from, I would say, the age of 14 onwards, it became more and more of, of, of an inevitability because we had moved back to my little hometown uh, in Waycross after three years, and I used to work at my grandfather's uh, men's store, uh, Rivenbark's men's shop, and there was a little uh, Waycross newsstand right around the corner. And I would go in there and buy Valentine uh, paperbacks for 50 cents. Hmm. And I read everything I could get my hands on uh, in every genre imaginable. And I I think it was probably about the time uh, I read uh, 1984, I think I was 14 or 15, uh, that in Brave New World, that I began to get the sense like, yeah, I, I kind of like what's going on here. Maybe this is something I could do. And as soon as I got into college uh, at the University of Georgia, I majored in English with a minor in Germany, and then I, I studied you know great literature uh, globally, and it just become became more and more of a conviction. And then um, I was very fortunate after I graduated, uh, my English teacher told me about a competition through Antioch University, which is a, a wonderful um, 
liberal arts uh, college headquartered in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and they had an annual competition uh, whereby you could, if you were chosen, win a full scholarship to study in Oxford and London, England, to earn a master's degree in creative writing. And I just happened to win uh, and was able to do that very thing. So I wow. uh, I went and studied uh, during the summers. Uh, Antioch uh, University rented out Plater, P-L-A-T-E-R, College in Oxford, which was a uh, Catholic college, which was not used during the summer semester. So they rented it out to Antioch University. So I lived in Oxford. Uh, I became a reader at the Bodleian Library, which you can only become a reader there when you're recommended by a mm. previous Bodleian reader. And one of my professors was a Bodleian reader. So he got me that, which meant I got to go back in the stacks and look at things like they had a copy of the original Gutenberg Bible. They had oh, wow. um, you know, Greek, Greek and, and, and Roman classics, uh, scrolls, I mean, all kinds of uh, wonderful things. And then we moved down to Islington in London, and that's where we had uh, our classes during uh, the September to June uh, academic year. So I li also lived in London, and while I was there, uh, I, I worked in the uh, British Museum Library. My professor was uh, writing his dissertation, and he hired me as a research assistant because I couldn't legally work uh, in Britain. I didn't have a work permit. And mm -hmm. I would go into the rotunda. Now, I, I understand hmm. the rotunda has been retired now, but when I was there, the rotunda, you would go in, the British Museum Library, and as you go, went in the first door, you'd look up, and at the first uh, landing of the stairs were the gates of Nineveh, which uh, you may recall from uh, the Torah uh, uh, and or the Bible, uh, that that is where um, Jonah uh, came from before he was swallowed by the whale. So there was the gate. There were the gates of Nineveh, about I would say 30 feet high and just wide enough for a chariot to get through. But then you would go, you would go uh, on the first floor back into the rotunda, which was three stories high, and you would sit at one of the tables, and a clerk, they pronounced it Clark, not clerk, uh, hmm. would come by, and you would write down the book you wanted, and then the clerk would go way up in the stacks and bring you the book you wanted. So that's how I was doing research, and I would go to the British Museum every day, it was one of the few places you could keep warm because unlike now, where it's hot, it's blazes because of global warming. It was frigid cold there. And um, so I got to explore the British, British Museum Library, the, um, all of the ancient cultures. They had a, a, a uh, chariot of a, an Assyrian princess there. They had a whole floor of Indian, Middle Eastern, Assyrian, Egyptian, ancient Hebrew artifacts, you name it. And... Uh, that gave me, and, and then I also went to the theater four nights a week because uh, I could get in for two pounds. And so many of the present movie stars uh, got their start doing productions for the Shakespeare, Royal Shakespeare Company. So I'm, mm -hmm. I, I got to know a lot of those people, and I, I met a girl who used to get me backstage at the National Theater, so I got to meet some of the cast members, etc. Oh, my gosh. And so I wrote several uh, 
plays. At that point, I was I was thinking of, of being a, a playwright like the next Arthur Miller or the next Tennessee Williams, <laughs> and it was it changed my life. I became a citizen mm-hmm. of the world because I realized I, I I figured out that the United States is not the center of the universe. The Brits are will very quickly tell you that Britain is the center of the universe. <laughs> uh, so it gave me uh, the sense of being a global citizen, and so uh, I graduated um, from that program and came back to the United States with a heavy British accent, which took it took me three, uh, I, I'd say two to three years before I completely lost really? it. Really? Oh, yes. I, I, I can still lapse into it, you know, hmm. after a couple of beers. <laughs> but uh, I lived in uh, my, my high school, I mean, my college sweetheart from the University of Georgia was a doctoral student at Stanford. So uh, we got married uh and lived on the Stanford campus for three years, and I worked in Silicon Valley as a technical writer. Hmm. And then uh, I got in. We we moved. She got offered a job at Florida International University in Miami after she got her doctorate, and um, I got interested in advertising. And there was an opening at uh, a pharmaceutical company, and I found out that was a little more a little more creative than technical writing. So. I got into advertising and did that for a number of years, but I never lost interest in doing my own creative work. And so my entire working life, I've worked as many hours as I can. I'm very disciplined on my own creative work. And then in uh, 2007, I got an offer from an ad agency in Irvine, California, and uh, we we moved out there, and I was there for eight and a half years. And uh, that was what gave me the fire in the belly, essentially, to write my present novel. Uh, and then, let's um, talk about that. Let let's let me let let me move you along with that because I know that you've mm-hmm. received a lot of diverse writing awards, but I want yes. you to have ample time to really talk about um, your your this novel, The Cloud, and. Um, okay. It's described as a spectacular, speculative fiction novel. And for those of us that don't know that definition, I think this is a good place for describing what speculative fiction novel means for those of us that don't know that. Yes, I'll be I'll be glad to help with that. Uh, that is a term that I got from uh, Margaret Atwood, uh, the brilliant author of The Handmaid's Tale and her stunning sequel to that uh, that came out in 2020 called The Testaments. Uh, and I admired her work. I've read many of her novels. She's written this pair of books, and she's also written another uh, uh, trilogy uh, set in a, a, a very frightening future, and she got very angry with critics who said that The Handmaid's Tale is science fiction. She says, no, it is speculative fiction because it takes present-day realities and extrapolates from them into a potential future that we can hopefully avoid. In the same way that George Orwell uh, wrote 1984 and also um, – uh, you know, many other uh, speculative fiction authors, uh, such you know, Brave New World, uh, books of that sort. So mm-hmm. she said, for me, that's not science fiction. 
science fiction is fantasy about you know all sorts of things that could happen and sometimes there are supernatural elements speculative fiction takes present day realities and projects them into a future i hope we can avoid so that's why i called it that let me ask you let me ask you a clarifying question so when you say that we take the present day reality and projects us into the future that we hope to avoid I want to put mm-hmm. the quotes around that we hope to avoid. Are they always things that we hope to avoid? Could the projects, could we, could we project into the future something that we wouldn't want to avoid, or is it typically something we would want to avoid? Something we, we, we definitely want to avoid if we can. And the uh, the frightening thing is, and one of my motivations for writing this novel is that a lot of what I dramatize uh, in this novel is already either in use or in development. And shall I just quickly go through? Some well, of yes, those? because sure, well, because I, I I think what I I think your 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 answer is perfect because I was about to ask you where did you get this idea from to, to, to write the clouds. So by all means, yes, tell us. Okay. The, uh, there are three things that uh, prompted me to uh, write this novel. A, my eight and a half years living in L.A. during the Great Recession. Uh, that was an incredibly financially challenging time. It was also emotionally challenging because my my prior marriage fell apart and I fell in love with a lovely uh, uh, lady from uh, Taiwan who was a a professional electric violinist and operatic vocalist Mm -hmm. and that relationship unfortunately went south and I was heartbroken over that. But uh, one of the wonderful things about living in the LA area was that it introduced me to Asia. And I got to know the cultures of China, Japan, Vietnam, Cambodia. Uh, these were all friends uh, and associates and colleagues that I knew and, and lived around and, and got to know. And it really opened that culture uh, up to me and, and made me feel like, okay, now I, I understand uh, a very important part of the world. And as many people have pointed out, the 21st century is China's century. So uh, it would behoove us all to understand that culture better and not just think of, of, you know, Chinese people and Asian people as the other. Uh, So that was factor number one. Factor number two was that um, when I moved back to Atlanta, uh, I came back, and this was after eight and a half years in L.A., I came back to take a job at a Fortune 500 commercial real estate company that is building cities of the future in 75 countries. Now, what I learned, because I was, I was the senior copywriter and video producer for their national uh, services department, and we were serving clients all over the United States uh, and also uh, being educated about what uh, their commercial real estate brokers were doing in all these other countries. And I, found, I discovered that these cities of the future are being built for the top 10% only. That is to say, those folks who have PhDs in engineering or other, or, you know, or law degrees or Harvard MBAs, uh, those are the folks that these communities are targeted towards, not for the, the, the bottom 90%. Uh, 
another thing that really made an impression on me, and I'm, that did not sit well with me. Another thing I learned about, uh, they sent us out to Las Vegas for the Adobe Max show. Uh, you may or may not be aware that Adobe um, develops all of the software that's used in advertising, hmm. uh, in the publishing industry, in the film industry, because they do uh, video editing software that's used universally. And out, while we were there in Vegas, it was a, a whole week, and Adobe, which is a Canadian company that dominates the market in, in, in this kind of software development, had a huge arena uh, with an IMAX size screen, and they previewed all the new software coming out. And one of the segments that, that made an incredible impression on me was their latest virtual reality or VR technology, whereby they had someone wearing a helmet, and behind them on this IMAX screen, you could see what people are able to experience in virtual reality today. Hmm. But they said within 20 to 25 years, all of this will be virtual reality, total immersion, meaning all movies and TV will be completely surrounded and you will experience that you will be in the middle of the movie or the middle of the series experiencing the characters and the situation with all five of your senses. Now that to me was on the one hand, very exciting, but also very terrifying. Mm -hmm. So I got very interested in futurist um, thinking. And one of the series of articles that I wrote for this company I work for gave me the chance to interview Dr. Andrea Shegut, that's C-H-E-G-U-T. She is the head of the MIT uh, Real Estate Innovation Lab, and she has a whole uh, uh, group of doctoral students who are designing the technologies for City of the Future as I say this. And so I got very familiar with, we got access to all of their dissertations, and we're talking about technologies like um, robotic uh, uh, skyscrapers that can be moved around on treads when you want to change your cityscape and many, many other technologies that are all in development now. Hmm. So I got kind of an insider's track on what those technologies were, look at, were look, going to look like, but I also knew what my company and other companies like them were planning for the future, that is, cities of the future for the top 10%. Uh, and that wow. got me interested in futurism. Mm -hmm. And I then read a book um, called uh, Homo Deus, uh, a, a brief description of the future. Uh, it's by a futurist uh, author named Yuval, Y-U-V-A-L, Noah Harari. Uh, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. And in this book, he asserts that the great quest of the top 1% uh, will be the quest for personal immortality in this life. And he claims, I cannot substantiate this, but he claims in this book that the founders of uh, uh, Google and other Silicon Valley uh, mega corporations are investing many millions of dollars into developing the, the advanced medical technology so they themselves can live forever. And that hmm. means once we have 
uh, the, the perfected AI technology, uh, then the um, middle and the working class become expendable because everything will be automated. There will be androids uh, that can do grunt work. Uh, of course, there will be sex robots. And then there will also be total immersion virtual reality so that you can, you don't have to have human relations anymore. Uh, you can simply have sexual relations with uh, in, inside a virtual reality, which is something that uh, in my novel I project in this society, which is ruled by the cloud. Um, everybody who can afford it will pay anything to be able to have these VR uh, virtual reality uh, subscriptions. So I hmm. took all of that, and it just gave me the fire in the belly to write this novel. And I projected it into – I didn't put a date on the future, but I just imagined what it would be like of all these traits that I've just described and trends. Uh, and, oh, and there's one more, and that is the surveillance technology that's in, in use in China now is such that they have AI software, artificial intelligence software, that can spot someone with traitorous thoughts walking down the street of any Chinese city. They scan oh your God. face for these cameras, which are everywhere, and if your facial expression in, indicates that you are having a traitorous thought, the secret police come for you that night, and you disappear into their gulag to either be uh, reconditioned through hard labor or executed. So that's already in place. So as I said a few moments ago, I'm describing a world that's already here or in development, and I just simply projected into a future where um, the the caliphate uh, has dirty bombed a certain number of American cities in their desperate attempt to destroy uh, the United States, and they've obliterated uh, Washington D.C. and New York City and some other great cities. And uh, a regime in uh, Hong Kong which has managed to take power from the Beijing regime by using their banking expertise. You know, in the present, uh, Hong Kong is still the global banking leader, but the Beijing regime has put a bunch of uh, administrators in there to uh, try to control it, but they don't know how to handle it. So I just speculate that, okay, could Hong Kong steal power from the Beijing regime? And that's by very subtly over a matter of decades using their financial expertise to get the Beijing regime in such incredible debt that they would then foreclose on it and promise the Chinese people we're going to have freedom and democracy. And so they destroy the Beijing regime. They take over, but instead of instituting a democracy, they institute a corporate uh, uh, oligarchy, which rules half the world and has taken over all of North America, Australia, New Zealand. And that's the regime that our uh, uh, male protagonist, Blaise Pascal VII, is either going to comply with because his boss, Min Xing, promises him immortality and a huge increase if he will uh, code uh, a, a lethal uh, uh, drug in his new uh, virtual reality series uh, and uh, use it to 
caused the slags, the lower class, to commit mass suicide so the military can then cart them away to these incineration centers that are going up in L.A. and other major cities. Can I just uh, interrupt you and just say that you are painting a frightening picture? Um, Mm. I don't hear too much hopefulness in anything that you've just said. Well, I'm just getting to that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, good. I, can we get there? Because right now I've got a stomach yeah. ache. So let's get over to the hopeful okay. side. All right. The hopeful side is this. Um, Blaze meets and introduced by a uh, Chinese-American woman named Christina Sun, S-U-N, uh, who uh, seduces him for the following purpose. She is part of an underground movement, which was – originally started by, uh, prior to the, the um, cloud seizing power in North America, there was for a couple of decades a very benevolent matriarchy which established a true democracy with true equality and uh, eliminated uh, you know, racism, classism, patriarchalism. That, unfortunately, was destroyed by the cloud when the cloud's enemy, the, the um, uh, caliphate, bombed, dirty bombed Washington and New York and a few other major cities. The survivors of that formed underground hacker movement, which has been working for decades to develop a killer worm called Polyphemus, uh, which is the name of the Cyclops in the Odyssey. And she is trying to convince uh, Blaze, because he has top security clearance as one of the cloud's uh, top virtual reality programmers inventing these, these total immersion series. She says, we want you to go in and upload this, and it will destroy the entire cloud server network. Hmm. So that is, and she gives it to me, says, she says, you know, we've been perfecting this for decades. You just need to have the courage with your security clearance to upload this. The only problem is that Min Xing, who is Blaze's boss, sends his own daughter, Mitsuko, to also seduce him to keep him in the fold. And she's trying to mm. sell him on the concept of forget about anything but immortality for you, me, and the other rest of the 1%. So it's a tough moral decision for him. And I don't want to give anything away. Sure, but I'll just I tell understand you, that. Yeah, yeah, but that is the hope is that the uh, the uh, uh, the movement that has been started by uh, this underground hacker network, which is an outgrowth of the now disempowered matriarchy, offers a potential solution, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Wow, wow, <gasps> my gosh. So I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I'm trying to process this and this and this guy and I'm trying to blaze and I'm trying to think about how the heck do you come up with these ideas to write all of this stuff because it, 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 it's, to me, I'm just being honest, this is so deep. I can't see the bottom of the hole. And I'm thinking, holy cow, how does somebody even come up with this kind of stuff? So... I'm just kind of curious here. Are you a tormented virtual reality programmer like your like your main man in the book? 
I, I, I'm not a virtual reality programmer, but I am a, a tormented writer. Uh, my favorite <laughs> writer, my favorite writer is Dostoevsky. I think he's the greatest mm-hmm. writer who ever lived, and he wrote about tormented antiheroes. In fact, he invented. He wrote about the first uh, antihero in, in Western literature in the Notes from the Underground. Uh, and my favorite composer is Beethoven. Uh, when I was mm-hmm. five years old, I used to put on his fifth and spin around like a dervish going into ecstasy <laughs> listening to his music because that's what it feels like. Beethoven's music is what it feels like to be inside my head. So, yes, I am very much like Blaze. <laughs> that- that's interest that's very that's very interesting to recognize that about yourself. I think that as we get older, many of us like to actually kind of take that dive into well geez who am I exactly and how how did I get here what what was what was the what was the transportation mode that got me to where I am and I look at this this book cover and it's it's um haunting I would just say to you it's a haunting picture. And I like the underwords that says, when everyone's a virtual reality slave, who can free the human soul? So how do you respond to that? Uh, the answer is uh, the same answer that Dostoevsky gave in his book, The um, Notes from the Underground, and that is that the only thing, what will save the human soul is the human spirit itself. That is to say, he makes the Dostoevsky makes the argument in Notes from the Underground that no matter what kind of utopia humanity comes up with, which is usually going to be dystopian, like the one I dramatize, somebody is also always going to say no to it because it is human nature to say no to a utopia. It is because ultimately the human, uh, the human soul is gifted with freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. And there's always the possibility that someone can say no to it. What are some examples in history? All you have to do is think about um, the um, uh, Lutheran pastors in Nazi Germany who refused to go along with it and smuggled thousands of Jewish people out of Germany. Uh, there are, are many wonderful books written about, and there's several. I don't want to pick anybody as the top candidate for that. But, uh, and these were uh, Lutheran pastors that were very frequently arrested by the Gestapo and executed. But mm-hmm. they said no to the Nazi regime. I don't have to remind you that there were two major attempts on Hitler's life. The second one came pretty close. It was by a a German uh, uh, colonel. Uh, They made a movie about it with Tom uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, Unfortunately, for whatever reason, Hitler uh, survived it and all of the conspirators were executed. But Mm -hmm. those are just a few examples from history of human beings who have the courage to say no to an oppressive regime. Mahatma Gandhi, same thing. Mm -hmm. Nobody credited him with any chance to overcome the might of the British Empire. And he did it through nonviolent resistance, which in turn inspired Martin Luther King, who, as we all know, uh, was the, uh, the great 
spirit of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and who unfortunately mm-hmm. paid uh, with his life for that. So that's my answer. The answer uh, to who, who can save the human soul uh, comes from within ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's a really great response. You're, you are not a surface thinker. And I've I've already mentioned this a little bit as we've been speaking. You, you're 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 deep, and um, I have a lot of respect for that. And um, if you were to ask me who my favorite philosopher was, I don't even know if I could name one for you. So um, I'm just being honest, you know. Um, so do do you have a favorite philosopher that you'd like to tell us about and why? Uh, sure, I'll be glad to answer that. And let me just mention that, yes, I am a deep individual, but this book is very entertaining. I just want to say that. It's not okay, a dry good. philosophical lecture. There's plenty good. of suspense. Uh, yes, action. it's a thriller. There's, right? I mean, a it's thriller. a thriller. It's a thriller, and it's very sexy, too. So it's got everything <laughs> a thriller uh, a reader would want. But to answer your question, uh, my favorite philosopher is Pierre uh, Teilhard de Chardin, and that's uh, Pierre uh, de Chardin is small uh, d, d small e mm-hmm. Chardin C H A R D I N. He was a uh, a paleontologist and also a Jesuit priest who mm-hmm. happened to work on archaeological digs in China and also South Africa. And his team discovered some of the key missing links that proved the theory of evolution. Hmm. You know, for uh, before that it was a theory, but his teams proved it. But he happened to also be a very deep thinker with a classical Jesuit education mm-hmm. uh, who um, believed, you know, that there is a spiritual dimension. So he wrote a couple of books um, the the, the the phenomenon a man and the divine milieu, which posit his philosophy, which has it that even single cell organisms he believes had some kind of rudimentary self awareness. By the time mm-hmm. you reach the stage of humanity, you have a much more evolved self awareness, and he believes that we are at a stage of evolution that is just a way station. And we as a species are going to continue to evolve to the point where he reaches what he calls the omega point. At that point, we will all be radiant beings that have the mind of Jesus Christ and Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. Uh, But also, before we get there, each one of us can ourselves evolve in our Mm -hmm. own lives to become more radiant beings. And a lot of his philosophy is borne out by quantum physics. Uh, the whole idea, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the whole idea that subatomic particles can influence each other from a distance. So um, I, uh, Pierre uh, uh, K.R. Deschardin's philosophy in the subtext of my novel. I only mention him by name once, mm-hmm. but I give... I give his philosophy life through the characters in the same way that Dostoevsky gave his favorite uh, philosophers uh, life through the characters in his wonderful novels. 
That's cool. You know, I, you said something earlier. This is probably the least amount of um, interrupting I have ever done on a podcast because oh. I'm just captivated by what you're saying. I, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, though. Did you, have you personally been to Vietnam and to, and to some of these countries back there? I mean, have you been there personally? I haven't been there yet. However, okay. I'm going to fix that. And uh, the reason I recommend I, it. I'm so passionate, yeah, the reason I'm so passionate about it is because I got to know so many people uh, from uh, uh, China, uh, Vietnam, uh, Japan, and Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had a relationship with a wonderful lady from Taiwan. So mm-hmm. I'm burning to get over there, and I will. I um, Let me know when you inter- determine to do that, because I do have a connection for you, because that's part of what I do in life. I have been to Vietnam um, with students from Loyola Marymount University many, many years ago with my friend that worked in their executive MBA program. And I have been in um, what, unfortunately, I'm just doing. A, I'm just saying that this now called Ho Chi Minh City, but my friends that are from yep. Saigon will never call it that. But I've been to Saigon, I have been to um, uh, Da Nang, and I have been to Hoi An, and um, I have a connection for you should you ever decide to go there, because it is remarkable. It's pretty remarkable to actually be on the Mekong and and come to the Delta and think about what transpired there all those years ago. It was a fascinating experience. But I digress. I thought because there are a lot of people that are listening to us that are writers, and I've had so many authors, and every every author tends to do things um, a little bit differently. And I thought perhaps you could take us through your writing process, as far as how do you how do you capture your thoughts? Are you on a computer? Or are you writing it in a journal? Are you bullet pointing things? How take us through just briefly what your writing process is like. I'll, I'll be more than happy to, and and I recommend this. Uh, to everyone, um, and I'm going to use my my current novel, The Cloud, which is, by the way, the first of a trilogy, uh, mm-hmm. as as a way to illustrate this process. Uh, what I start with is an overpowering emotion of some kind, uh, and the emotion that gave me the fire in the belly to write this was initially uh, rage. It was three emotions, rage, sorrow, and grief. Rage at the company I was working for, this Fortune 500 commercial real estate company that was building cities of the future, but only for the top 10%. Secondly, there was uh, the sorrow of having fallen in love with a, a wonderful lady from Taiwan and the relationship didn't work out. And then there was the grief of, of, of loss. Uh, there were so many years, I spent eight and a half years in L.A. just on the edge uh, because mm-hmm. I had not grown up there. I didn't have the network, and I had a tough time during the Great Recession. I mean, I arrived there just in time for it uh, and uh, left eight and a half years later. So I start, I would say, and this is a good place to start, I disagree with Hemingway. He said, write about what you know. I totally disagree about that. 
I say write about what you're passionate for, whether you know anything about it or not. Mm. I knew very little about a lot of what I was writing about until I did the research and, and, and thought about it. And so my process uh, with this was I, um, I was traveling out to, uh, I believe I was traveling out to L.A. because I had a screenwriting partner I was partnering with for several years. And on the plane, I, I just got this, this idea. It had been percolating in my mind for several months. And I started just like free associating, just, just writing, automatic writing. Uh, and it was a very, very rough, very blurred idea for this, but it was a long flight, and I just made myself keep writing as opposed to fall asleep. And then when I... Are you... I, let me interrupt you. Are you writing pen to paper, or are you typing on a laptop? Oh, I, I have been on a word processor since they first came out. So you are, so you are typing. Have, You're not handwriting. I am t- uh, typing, yes. Like, yeah, I don't, All right, I don't think I could. I don't think I could handwrite anymore. Yeah, yeah. I just day. wanted to be clear because some people <laughs> like some people write in journals, but I wanted to hear what you do. So you you are typing away. So I excuse my interruption. Let continue. Not at all. So you're Not typing away. That's, a, that's an important question. Yes, typing away uh, on my laptop. Uh, one of my many MacBook Pros, which I mm-hmm. adore, and. Um, I just had kind of a long document. It was about, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 pages of just kind of pouring out my thoughts about this story. So I made my trip to L.A. My uh, screenwriting partner and I went to a producer's party, and uh, I got back to Atlanta. And when I had time, because I, I was still working for the commercial real estate company, when I had time, like on a weekend, I went through the notes, and then I got really passionate. So the next step was to write a formal outline where mm. I, I go uh, blow by blow through the entire action of the book. Uh, now, while I was doing this, I also write, wrote uh, character descriptions for uh, my male protagonist, Blaise Pascal the seventh, my female protagonist Christina Sun, and my femme fatale Mitsuko. Uh, and I also did a, a ton of research to come up with their names. I wanted for uh, Mitsuko the femme fatale and uh, Christina the uh, female protagonist are both. Chinese American. So I wanted to come up with uh, good Chinese names mm-hmm. uh, or, or Asian names, and I, it took me several months. And I must have gone really. Yeah, I went wow. through hundreds because it had to be right. It had to be right, and I decided. How did you uh, know what um, was right? How did you determine what was right? Because I knew my uh, my. <laughs> My beloved, whom I had lost, had a uh, Japanese mother who was a direct descendant of the uh, 
one of the uh, uh, Korean emperors, and there, there's a lot of intermarriage between China, Korea, mm. okay. uh, Japan. And so I hit on a name that's quite common uh, in in Chinese from those who are descended from uh, Japanese forebears. And when okay. I saw Mitsuko, I knew that was it. I could see the character in front of me. I knew exactly what she looked like. And and, and then as far as Christina, the, the female protagonist, I just, I went through all of the Chinese names and I just didn't, I couldn't decide I liked any of them. So I decided to give her a European name, which just resonates. And it also reflects her character because she, Christina, uh, she is a very deeply mystical woman as well as, as, well as being brilliant as a, um, a hacker. Mm-hmm. And in Blaze, I just, I wanted a name that had some kind of historical resonance. And I've always admired Blaise Pascal. He's the one that came up with the Pascalian wager. Not, excuse me, the, uh, yeah, the wager is, he said, I'm going to decide I'm going to bet that God exists uh, because if I'm right, then in the afterlife, I'll be fine. If I'm wrong, it won't make any difference because it'll just be infinite black. I won't know anything. And so I, I've always, always admired him. He was also a, a guy who had a major role to play in the development of the computer because he was a mathematical genius as well as being a brilliant theologian and philosopher. So, and I decided to give the characters kind of um, Elizabethan or, or European names. And so mm-hmm. I gave, gave the characters, like I made him Blaise Pascal the Seventh, you know, the I.I. And I did that with several other characters just to give the society a resonant name. So I came up with a detailed outline. And when I got happy with it, this was after about maybe 20 uh, drafts of it. I then sent mm-hmm. it to uh, a professional book editor that I had known for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Lyon, and I had sent an earlier novel I wrote, which was never published. Uh, but I knew her, and I knew she was good. And I said, Elizabeth, I've got a new project. I'd like you to look at this outline. And I sent it to her, and she came back, and she said, Bob, God, this is a winner. Uh, hmm. Let I'll, I'll edit it for you and just follow my lead. So wow. I did. I made many edits and uh, went through many rounds with her. And when we both got happy with that, I started writing the novel. Because hmm. by that point, I was very clear in my mind about the story I was writing and where I was going and what the character arcs were for the male protagonist, the female protagonist, and the femme fatale, and also the villain, uh, Mitsuko. So I wrote it. How long did uh, it, how long did that process take from um, having this writing about what you love and you're passionate about through all of these rewrites and your research and everything that you've done? How long did it how long did that take you? I'm just curious. It, it took me uh, uh, two years to get through that process, including the rewrites I did on the uh, first draft that mm-hmm. Elizabeth Lyon edited for me, she then urged me to enter it in every major writing competition in the United States that accepted science fiction. 
And I did. And within a month, I had won the 27th annual uh, San Antonio Writers Guild competition. I took first place wow. in the um, science fiction category. This was in uh, February of 2019. And Congratulations. When I Oh, thank you, thank you. I never did. I had no idea that I in 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 in, in the running even. Uh, and then she said, "All right, now I want you to get Jeff Herman's guide to literary agents and publishers, uh, and I want you to do mass mailings to 20 agents at a time, and write a great pitch letter, and I'll help you write it to make sure you hit all your selling points. And mm-hmm. if you don't hear anything back," send 20 more. And if you don't hear anything <laughs> back, send 20 more. And if you get rejection, send 20 more. So I sent out the first t- uh, 20, and uh, the first day, uh, it was a Saturday, uh, a gentleman named Kenneth Atchity, who is a Hollywood literary yep, manager I know. and producer. Mm-hmm. He's been on my podcast. Who, I know him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, he wrote me back the same day. And said, "Hi, I'm I'm Ken Atchity. I'm a Hollywood literary manager and a producer. I think you've got a winner here. Could you please send me the entire manuscript as a PDF? I don't want sample chapters. I want the whole book. And I'll get back to you in about three weeks." So I sent it off. Three weeks later, I got a call. Hi, this is Ken Atchity. You may recall we spoke three weeks ago. I've read your novel. I think you've got a winner here. Uh, as as a bestseller and a uh, feature uh, hit feature film and or series, I would like to place you under exclusive contract with me. And mm. I said, thank you, sir. I accept. And so <laughs> that that was uh, uh, the beginning of a, a a a process that went through two more years, where I went through seven major rewrites with Ken script wow. um, doctors and Ken himself who uh, donated time, and, you know, you can hire Ken as a, an editor, but he's going to charge you top dollar. But in my case, he believed in the project. He was so passionate about it that he donated the time and also got his producer friends to come in and, and give me edits. And I put it through seven major rewrites, which hmm. I thought there were times when I thought, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And he said, no whining. Just shut up and do what I tell you. Everything will be fine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, man, that's funny. Yeah. Gosh. And in uh, spring of, of uh, 2020, or March of 2020, uh, he he found the publisher for the book, and I signed a, you know, a contract with him, uh, giving him first refusal on uh, rights, for the book as a series, the idea being that he would he would then bring me in as uh, uh, with created by credit, uh, and uh, he would negotiate um, contributing producer credit hmm. and salary and a a slot in the writers' room because he also had me write a sixty minute pilot script, and that was oh, that went cool. through seven McCreary rights. Yeah. So wow. that was my process, and the book came out uh, later later in the year, and it's available on Amazon. Yes, uh, it sure is. We speak. It is, and you know, I'm I'm trying to put myself somewhere in your shoes 
it's not easy because you are like i said i'm i'm kind of a surface person and you are a deep person but were you visualizing when when you talked to kenneth about this could you have visualized can you visualize somebody that you could imagine playing blaze could you sort of see that person that that actual actor well there are many actors that i've visualized uh, but mm-hmm. Ken has urged me never to speak any actor's name because there mm-hmm. could be a lawsuit. If that oh, lawyer, interesting. If, that, if that actor heard me using his or her oh, name. Oh, that's fame, interesting. Okay, well, yeah, we don't want we, that to happen. <laughs> we don't we want definitely don't let's, want that to happen. Oh, my gosh. Let, let's, let's just say that, that Ken and I have kicked around several actors uh, to play the lead of Blaze and also mm-hmm. actresses uh, to play Mitsuko, the femme fatale. That's, that's one I'm especially uh, interested in because in many ways she's my favorite character. And, and also for Christina and for the, the, uh, the nemesis or villain, uh, Min Shing. So that's all in development. And, you know, Ken has relationships with some of these folks, but I, I daren't, uh, mention anybody's name because well we, sure we first, <laughs> right we absolutely do not um, exactly <laughs> but how, what exciting times for you and i'm i'm listening to all of this and i'm thinking my god how do you balance how do you like are you do you i happen to know that ken's wife is a yogi because she is also going to be joining yeah. me in january because she she is uh, i also take yoga do you do something that just kind of uh, calms you down do you walk do you run do you what do you do to just um balance your life out when you've got all of this going on in your head uh i i do two things i do power walks uh, three and a half miles, and I try to do those uh, at least three to five times a week because I live in a neighborhood where there are sidewalks everywhere and beautiful gardens. Nice. And I, I do the power walk. And I also do a form of uh, a meditation called Centering mm. Prayer, which I learned from my spiritual director, uh, who's a monk at a monastery outside Atlanta. And he's the one who turned me on to Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. So, yeah, I do those two things. And I'm just incredibly well disciplined, uh, and I don't have, I don't have vices. I'm basically a workaholic. <laughs> and I bet you eat healthy. Yes, ma'am. I, I cook everything at home. Uh, I make all my doctor's appointments, dental appointments, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm very, very uh, acutely aware of keeping myself healthy because I want some shelf life. So this is right, going to be there a, you go. both a novel trilogy. And Ken said, "Look, let's get the get the." Let's get the series sold for the first book, and then um, that'll give you some wherewithal to flesh out the trilogy. And then, you know, we could keep going uh, with series and feature films, uh, you know, spinoffs. We we could turn this into a franchise. And Ken is a guy that's been doing this for 40-plus years. Right. Uh, He he did some things like, uh, you know, he helped to launch the career of Angelina Jolie with a little film called Life and something or something like it. He also mm-hmm. uh, was uh, a uh, he was exec- executive producer on that. He was also uh, a producer on The Meg, uh, which is one of his, his best clients, uh, Steve Alton. Uh, and that became a feature film in 2018. 
and really did well internationally. And uh, Jason Statham and Bing Bing Lee, one of my favorite Chinese actresses, starred in that. And there's going to be a, a sequel coming out in 2023. And I'm, I'm not sure. I think they may, both those act, actors may be coming back. So that's, he knows what he's doing, and he doesn't yeah. waste time on people. It, 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 he's he's got the instinct. I mean, he's got a PhD in in, in uh, classical studies from Yale. He's been doing this for forty plus years. He knows a winning uh, project when he sees it. And well, I well, how fortunate, right? Do, I'm sure okay. that part of your meditation has some gratitude attached to it, because um, it sounds like you are living the life you want, and a lot of people can't say that. And the fact that you have more things down the road for you, you have you have things to look forward to. And I just, you know, the, I, I have met many guests that return, especially in the author world, that um, they come back because they are progressing. And, you know, we'll see where... You know we are at this time, the same time next year, and where you where you've gone with this? Because perhaps prior to this, we can be talking about what people are doing on our televisions or in the movie theaters that um, are watching um, your words come to life. Because uh, let's face it, you're writing the words, so um, you are you are really a remarkable person, and I'm just delighted that you were able to spend this hour with me. It's been really, really interesting. Well, thank you so much for having me. And just know that I, I have labored in the uh, vineyards of the arts for decades. And mm-hmm. when my ship comes in, I'm going to do everything I ha- can to help out other people in the arts, whatever the job description may be, because I plan to eventually become writer, director, producer, and I want to give a hand up to other artists because I know how hard it is to make progress in the arts. And I'm so blessed to have Ken Atchison in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and please send folks to The Cloud by Robert I will. Park on Amazon. And I would be delighted to be your guest again. And uh, who knows what <laughs> will happen. What the future next. holds, right? Who knows what the right. future holds? We're, you know, we're, we're, we're only promised so much, and we have to take advantage of where we are in this beam of light. So um, thank you and so much also, for joining. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say thanks also so to my publicist, my publicist Devin Blaine, who introduced oh, no me kidding. to you. She moves mountains. <laughs> she moves mountains. She actually start. She actually was a guest on my show in January. It'll be two years next month. She is a remarkable woman with a great team, and I am I am grateful for Devin and, and the immense the tremendous people that she is associated with, including yourself and Ken. And therefore, you know, I feel I feel like I have job security, so they say, because I know that there's always these in, 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 tremendous people like yourself. So. Thank you so much for taking your time today to join me, share your story um, about your life and your book, and I hope that it is majorly successful for you, as it, as I know it is, and then to see where we go next, because it's pretty darn exciting, Robert, and I just want to thank you once again for joining me today. 
And I want to thank you, too, and uh, just know that I've got your back. I'm going to be okay. a major advocate for you. Okay. Well, wow. That's that's great. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to make a post-it note about that, okay? <laughs> okay, everybody. Have a great rest of your week. Be safe. And and I'll be doing another show next week, and then I'm taking the 26th off. My son and his wife will be here from Tucson, and I'm not going to do a show on the last Monday of December, but I am looking forward to next week's show as well. So until next time, everybody, have a safe and great week. Bye for now, everyone.